So I spent yesterday watching and re-watching this series. I was here live and in person, in on the, the ground floor planning of it from the beginning. But I wanted to, to watch it, and because I took notes every time, thinking, you know, what am I going to say? What, what special niche um, do I want to communicate? Um, and I did. I got it all typed out. I actually had probably five or six pages of notes in Word. And then I had probably another 15 pages of what I, I was actually going to say, and my computer froze. Well, not my computer, just Word. And I was like, really? Okay. So I closed it, I walked away, I did some other things, and I came back, and it was still frozen. And I was thinking, gosh, I got all the good stuff out, and I'm not going to remember um, what, what it was that I felt so passionate about. But I, I regrouped, and I sat down, and I started doing it again. And it actually, for me, turned out better. I hope you all feel the same way. If you don't, the other was better, and we'll talk about that later. <laughs> but I typed it all out again, and I, I, I feel like I have something to share. In fact, I, I texted a number of you yesterday, and my friend Judy um, said something very kind. She said, we're missing your voice. And about, gosh, 10 hours into it yesterday, I texted everyone back and I said, I think I found my voice. I hope you say amen when I'm done. I thought I'd have a little fun with the title, too. We're so close to Halloween that I even asked them to put tombstones up there, but they, but they didn't. Um, you know, Rip, Rest in Peace, is something that I actually thought of for a title of a series not long ago. Because so often, the only times we hear Rip or Rest in Peace is when someone dies. It's on tombstones or fake tombstones, or we use it at Halloween. But I think one of the, the major manifestations of grace, one of the greatest hopes for us in Christ, one of God's greatest hopes for us, I think, is for us to rip here on earth. In the land of the living, Jesus literally died for us to rip. Wouldn't that be a great bumper sticker? <laughs> rip in life. I think you'd get it as much or some attention like our billboard does outside of Grace Church. In fact, I believe that one of the primary manifestations of the it is finished work of Christ on the cross is resting in peace. After all, the work is done. We've been saved. The world has been saved, reconciled, made righteous, and there is nothing left to do but rest in peace. Resting in peace is the posture of Jesus. We see it. He sat down at the right hand of the Father, resting. But sadly, we have a hard time doing that. I have a hard time doing that because we're so caught up in fear and anger judgment, fighting, striving, just to name a few. We're afraid of the future. 
We're afraid of the past, the present, war, finances, the economy, careers, kids, health, politics, and a million other things. And we are so angry because we're afraid. Lashing out at everyone around us or with whom we disagree. We're judgmental of others with whom we disagree, socially, politically, or on any other number of topics like, and you don't have to raise your hand when I hit yours, <laughs> mask in the car alone or no mask at all, vax or anti-vax, electric or gas vehicles, pro-life or pro-choice, Democrat or Republican or independent or libertarian or Green Party or whatever the new one will be tomorrow, Israel or Palestine or both, Pre-trib, post-trib, no-trib, old earth or new earth, meat or vegan. What diet? Mine's better. Obviously not. <laughs> what exercise plan? Gun control? Red flag laws? Permitless carry? Waiting periods? And don't get me started on all things LGBT. We're judgmental of sinners or at least of the sinners who sin differently than we do. But I agree with Clark. I hate the term sin. In fact, for years I've said it is absolutely, for me, an irrelevant word. I don't think about it anymore except for when I hear it and when I do, I bristle. And we're fighting or debating ad nauseum with those we're afraid of, with those we're angry at, with those we are judgmental of. We're fighting and debating over everything. We aren't just fighting from time to time. It feels like we're always fighting. We're always angry. We've become conditioned to it. Bump me the wrong way, and I'm going to lash out because we're angry. And we're constantly striving to do better, to be better, to get ahead, to stay ahead, to be good, to win, to be hashtag winning, or to help others do better, or to help others get better, or to help others get ahead, and so on. And these things destroy our peace. I don't know about you, but my peace is destroyed five seconds after flipping on the TV and watching any, any number of news stations out there. These things keep us plugged in to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil rather than the tree of life. And we're completely manic over all of the above. And it's no wonder because we're plugged into our favorite news outlet that is spewing divisive rhetoric 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. The same bad news with different pundits every hour, every day, all year long. And then we start trolling Facebook looking for posts that back up our worldview and reposting and cutting and pasting and sending via text or via signal or via telegram or Instagram or instant message or TikTok or Snapchat or oh my God, what else? We're commenting and liking said posts and discussing them, rehashing them with the same emotion until we're in a frenzy. 
entrenched in battles that we cannot possibly help with or win or do anything about. Amen? And that at the end of the day, don't deserve the level of attention or emotion that we've given it. I get it. It's hard to see what's going on around us and not speak up, to share our opinion or to rush to judgment or to hear something that sounds right and want to share it with others so that we can be the one who reposted something that saves the world. Don't you feel like that sometimes? If I like this, it's gonna show up in my feed and somebody's gonna just have their whole world changed because of what I just did. It's not true. It feels impossible, and I wrote in all caps, irresponsible, to overlook what's happening around us and to make no comment. But does this promote peace? Is that the posture of Jesus? Is it what he died to promote as what his father is like? No, it's not. It doesn't. It steals our peace. It robs our joy, and it makes us afraid, which makes us angry and judgmental, and it's a vicious cycle that has no resolution. And it doesn't reflect our good, good Father God or bear his image or tell his story. As my friend Tyler Wig wrote in his genius book a number of years ago, the world is not ours to save. It's his. And I'm going to give you a, a little insight. He already did. The, totally. The billboard we've had up on I-4 for at least the majority, if not the entirety of the time that we've been here, says God is not angry, and that's the truth. God's not angry because he's not afraid. The root of anger is fear. God is all-knowing. He's all-seeing. He has always known what was coming. I think it, we alluded to that in a song we sang earlier. He knew before the foundation of the world everything that would come after. He's never caught off guard, and therefore, he never overreacts. There's never a time when someone shocks God and he jumps or spills his coffee, because I think he really does like coffee. <laughs> or maybe that new mushroom stuff um, that I keep getting. No? OK. Have you not seen that mushroom coffee that they've got promoted on Facebook? I think I liked it or watched a video or something, and now that's all I see. Or maybe I just thought it. I thought, oh, that's interesting, and now it's all I see because Mark Zuckerberg has found a way into our brains. God isn't judgmental because he's not jealous. Don't you know the root of our human jealousy is so often or I'm sorry, the root of our human judgment is so often rooted in jealousy. We judge others because we're jealous they're having fun. I remember sitting in a, an interview. I was in Northern Ireland, and a friend of mine was there, and we were doing a radio interview, and we were having this conversation before the interview started, and we were talking about 
people who were living in sin. And this was in the, the evolution of grace for me. And I said, but they'll still be in heaven. And she got beat red mad, sweating, angry. And she said, no, they won't. I said, yes, they will. And she said, how dare you say that? I've given up all of this so that I could go to heaven. How dare you say that they haven't given up those things and they get to go too? We're so angry. And in that moment, I thought, oh, you're jealous because they haven't given that up, but you have. God's not judgmental because he's not jealous. God isn't fighting, he's not fighting a culture war. He's not fighting for against a political party or a political candidate. You may think there's a God's man for the job. I don't know that I agree with you. He's not fighting the gay agenda. He's not even fighting those who are fighting against his truth. He doesn't have to. He's God. He is hashtag winning. He has won with love. God isn't afraid or angry or insecure, so he doesn't need to fight. Fighting is the result of insecurity and fear and anger, and God isn't striving. God doesn't need to get ahead of anyone or anything. He isn't worried about someone getting top billing over him. He doesn't need us to make him famous or defend his honor. The root of striving is worry, anxiety, fear, and insecurity. And God is none of those things. And aren't you glad? Growing in grace and resting in peace is, in a sense, giving up. Raising the white flag of surrender. Choosing to ruin your reputation and lose your good name. In some cases, for the greater good. If grace doesn't make you feel or look or sound heretical, it's not grace. I'll be honest. That was the easy part of the message. <laughs> Sharing this morning is a mixed bag for me. My nose is running like Bill Snell's. You all know me as Alan, the witty and charming Sunday morning host. <laughs> Worship leader and sharpest dressed man at Grace Church. <laughs> Maybe in the whole county, I don't know. Those are things I love. Giving a two minute recap after the message on a Sunday morning 
amidst the announcements is fun. It's easy. Sharing a word of welcome before or during worship is something I enjoy. Poking fun at Scott Seidler as often as possible while I live for it. And donning the latest fashion. Yes, please. But speaking an entire message means being vulnerable and sharing things that I care so deeply about and risking, well, frankly, loss of relationship. Isn't she a great wife? I'll put that right there. It's a risk because I know what it's like to be honest and to lose relationship and to lose friendship and to lose respect and reputation. And let's just be honest, members. Too late though, here I am. I'm already up here and there is no turning back and I said it's a mixed bag because while it's difficult, part of me relishes the opportunity because I do care deeply and growing gracefully is something I have done. And I have a strong opinion on how to do it, but I'll leave it right there and I'll say this is my opinion. I'm not speaking about the direction of the church. I'm not speaking on behalf of the elders or the leaders or anything like that. This is simply what it is. It's my opinion and my story and my lived experience. I have grown gracefully, gracefully. Leslie and I both have. And it has cost us nearly everything over the last 10 plus years. Speaking isn't something that's foreign for me. I told Matt I was coming out of retirement today. I may go back in at your request when it's over. It was once a major part of my vocation. I stood on this stage and many other stages all over the world for 20 years as a leader in the pro-family movement, speaking to enormous crowds, small crowds, and crowds of one. I was the president of a ministry called Exodus International, a ministry that once proclaimed freedom from homosexuality through the power of Jesus Christ. It was my ministry and my story. I got involved in Exodus at age 19, and I became the president by the time I was 29. I won awards, I got book deals, have been interviewed by every major and minor television, newspaper, and media outlet in the entire world. I've testified before joint houses of Congress, the judiciary fought for Supreme Court justices to be confirmed, they were, you're welcome. I spent countless hours working in the George Bush White House on legislation, some I'm proud of and some I'm not. I was the go-to on faith and sexuality for well over a decade, and I was also afraid and angry, judgmental, fighting, striving, and lacking peace. But grace. Clark has been our pastor for nearly 30 years. 
I first heard him speak when I was 22. He came to my church in 1994 here in Orlando. And while I don't remember his exact words necessarily, sorry, Clark, I do remember being left with a sense of hope and peace and inspiration and an overwhelming sense that I couldn't get rid of, that there was more, more than what I'd grown up with, more than the religion that I'd found. I told myself that he ever, if he ever came to Orlando, I'd go to his church. And on Easter Sunday, 1995, he became the pastor of Calvary Assembly in Winter Park, and shortly after that, I joined. I met and fell in love with Leslie, and there we got married in 1998. I'd been involved in a local Exodus ministry and was becoming known for my story. And in 1999, I got a very large grant, and I went to Clark, and I asked him if I could give the church the money and have him hire me. And he said yes, much to the chagrin of many of the pastors and the leaders and the people in the church because nobody wanted to mess up the million-dollar marble with that mess. In 2001, I was hired as the president of Exodus International. And Grace, at that time, was a part of Clark's message in those days, but it was more subtle. He didn't pull out the fire hose every Sunday <laughs> back then. In 2005, along with a number of others, some of them are here today, we started Grace Church with Clark and Martha. And on day one, Clark promised to teach us everything he knew or would learn about grace. It was then that the fire hose got pulled out and was just simply left on stage. Every week was like a new revelation. Leslie mentioned in her message that we were amening and cheering and talking about grace constantly. There wasn't anywhere we went, no group of people that we sat down with that we didn't talk about grace. It really was the proverbial Lexus with the big red bow at Christmas every single day. Our kids grew up here. They were infants when we planted this church, and they've never lived a day, and I love this, They've never lived a day believing that God was angry or that they had nothing to, or that they had something to earn to gain his favor. I wish I could say that they've never known me angry, but that's another story. It's not a parenting seminar this morning. They've never had to go through deprogramming or deconstruction of their faith. In the early days of grace, And the messages that we were learning only seemed to enhance my ministry at Exodus. I did begin altering parts of the message, but it only made it more popular. Exodus became a kinder, kinder gentler, softer, more gracious arm of the church. But at the end of the day, it was kind of like a velvet brick. Velvet bricks still hurt, don't they? but grace. The more we learned, the more finessing I did to the message. Exodus grew big. Like I said, I was in Washington, D.C. numerous times a year 
regularly on CNN and Fox News, MSNBC, The Today Show, Good Morning America, and so on. But grace was daily messing with the message and the mission. I found myself unable to sharply condemn behavior at the expense of good people just trying to do their best. I fought against gay marriage in California and helped raise $50 million to do so, only to melt when our side won and I sat watching in 2008 the split screen on Fox News where on one side, our side that I had fought with were cheering like it was 1999. And on the other side, people were falling to their knees and weeping because their families had been destroyed. Because of grace and people, I pulled Exodus out of politics and tried to refocus on helping those who wanted help and finding ways to bridge the great divide with those who didn't agree. I sought to endear the church to the LGBT community and vice versa. Again, introducing a softer, gentler evangelism still subtly wrought with judgment. We were preaching mixture. A little leaven leavens the whole loaf, does it not? Long, long, very long story short. Grace continued to carve a river of love in my heart of stone. In those ensuing days, I spent a lot of time listening to people's stories focusing on seeing people God loved and created rather than their perceived proclivities. In fact, it was during that time, probably 12 years ago or so, right about now, that Leslie and I had a day off. Her mom um, watched the kids one Sunday afternoon after church. You guys are parents, or those who are parents remember the days or know the days of grandma coming over and saving your, you're literally saving your life and letting you go do something else. So we went out shopping, which is what we love to do. Um, and we went to adjectives. It was kind of new back then. You guys know adjectives. If you don't know adjectives, you really should. Um, and we went, it was in their original building when there was only one, one adjectives location. And we went in and we started looking around and like Leslie and I often do, we split up and I go and look at the things that I love and she starts looking at things she loves. And um, she kind of stopped and focused on this candle area and um, these handmade, homemade candles. And there was a guy there who was obviously gay and he was helping Leslie. He, was, um, he worked there, he was the only one there. And I think we were the only ones in the store for like two hours, which is weird. And I would walk by and he and Leslie were having just the very best time. And I'd come back and kind of insert myself and we'd talk an, a, a minute and then we'd go away and we'd do other things. And by the end of it all, we were at the checkout counter and we purchased our, our items, including I think a, a few candles. And Leslie and I left and we said goodbye to this, this incredibly nice human being. 
And we walked out in the parking lot and we looked at each other and we remarked about how fun that experience was. And that for the first time, here I am, the president of an international organization that helps people become free. We walked out and we said, wasn't it nice that we didn't think once about how we could help that poor man? What we did was we realized this incredible creation who was full of passion and excitement and enthusiasm and creativity and joy, doing something he loves and talking about a product that he loved for hours with us. Our hearts and our minds were changing. In 2012, not long after that, maybe six or eight months after, in 2012, Clark did one of his fire hose messages and Leslie scribbled on her notes, we were sitting right over here. It was our chosen spot for years before she abandoned me to the back room. We were sitting over here and she scribbled on her notes, we might lose everything because of this, because of grace. This might cost us everything, were I think her exact words. And it did. I tried to change the DNA of Exodus and our ministry split in half. And for a year after that, we had peace like never before, nothing like a church split to get rid of all the people that you don't like, right? I realize that is absolutely probably a horrible thing to say, but sometimes it's true. And they probably feel the same way. Thank God I'm out of there. Those people may have gotten the building, but we're so glad not to be doing that on every Sunday with them. But anyways, I digress. Those who stayed were loving grace, or at least the grace that we knew about at the time. And we were looking for a way forward. But after a year... God told me it was time to turn off life support on this ministry. There was no way to continue, and frankly, there was no reason. And on June 19th, 2013, at our 38th annual Exodus Conference, I stood as an opening speaker, as I had every year of my presidency, and I shut down the organization before a large crowd sitting before me and hundreds of thousands of people watching online including, I might add, Anderson Cooper. That move cost us nearly everything. And I'll be honest, we still feel it deeply today. Overnight, we lost millions of dollars in donations, our retirement, decades-long friendships, our reputations, and some thought our salvation but grace. We almost lost our house and so much more. You see, I didn't just close a ministry that night. We had the audacity to apologize for things, not just that we'd done or the ministry had done, but that all of you had done as well. I apologized on behalf of the church because we failed to love well. I felt I had the right, and frankly, whether I had the right or not, I had a microphone and a lot of cameras on me. 
And my focus wasn't just on the people who'd actually been hurt, but on generations of them to come who might look back on that night and think to themselves, someone in power cared enough to say they were sorry and that they were wrong. Whether I did it all right or not doesn't matter. What matters is it happened. That they might look back and see that someone dared to repent, to change their mind, and to love better. My pendulum didn't swing to the other side, if you're wondering. I didn't go from one side of the debate to another side of the debate. That evening was the demarcation of the pendulum falling off of its axis. No more would the pendulum go from one side to the other. No more would I be on this side of the fight or that side of the fight because no one wins on either side of the fight. And don't you know, both sides are plugged into the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and it's deadly. It doesn't help anyone. Jesus died for us to plug into the tree of life and for our pendulums to stop swinging and for our politics to stop leading. Don't you know that it doesn't matter what king we elect in a couple of years? The real king is and has always been on the throne and that won't ever change, amen? We don't worship a government. We don't worship public policy. We worship the king of heaven who died for all of us, or he died for none of us. Amen? We heard from everyone and their brother after that night, and my brother, and my mother, <laughs> and Leslie's mother, and a lot of other mothers. I spent sun up and sundown doing interviews. The LGBT community was stunned. Conservatives were red hot angry. It was an atom bomb dropped in the middle of a culture war. This is why I struggle being up here today. It's why I left vocational ministry. It's why I stepped into the shadows for a while, even here at Grace Church. Doing what we did even caused a rift here among some in our own home church and among our people. My motives were questioned. Some went to the pastor's and other leaders, some was concerned I was on a slippery slope, and I was, it's called grace. I was looking at the notes and the outlines, and that's what this box is, lest you thought it was ashes for rest in peace and <laughs> something other weird like that on Halloween. These are the notes that I've saved every day since Grace Church started. And when I speak, I like to look through them. And it's a reminder of the messages that I thought were amazing and the ones that were like, meh, maybe not. Um, I'm kidding. They've all been amazing. But I, I looked back, and the last time I spoke was 2017. I, I stepped away. And I start choosing to be quiet and to focus my work and my ministry and my passion elsewhere. Speaking here at home has always been a little bit of a burden 
Because no matter how diplomatic I try to be or how hard I try, sometimes people find offense and sometimes people leave. I will say this burden has been lightened considerably because Clark has shared some of the most hard-hitting and profound messages over the last year that I've ever heard. He's taken a little bit of the pressure off. He also is heretical. The one a few weeks ago, I have been longing to hear from him for a very long time. Rick and Matt and Leslie have also delivered some beautiful messages that have only contributed to where we're going and where we're headed and what we believe. I said speaking is a struggle and it's a mixed bag, that part of me didn't want to do it, but I have to admit, I'm up here today because more of me did. Because I have a dream. While I would love nothing more than for all of you to love this message and to resonate with it and to be challenged and encouraged by it, not to overthink it or to be fearful of it. And I hope you are encouraged. I hope you do love it. Your opinion matters to me. But my greater dream is that those who feel discouraged, spiritually homeless, helpless, desperate, voiceless, will hear it and begin to hope. Hope that there's a God who's crazy about them and a community where they can grow in that understanding. I have a dream that the it is finished gospel of grace will get out of hand and that people who don't go to church and who don't know about the free gift that's been given will awaken and fill this place and others like it and be welcome with genuine smiles and celebration that they dared to darken the door. I have a dream that the love of God will be synonymous with church and with Christianity and that the great revival will sweep our world and that captives will be set free and that the fear that they have in their minds will be changed to see that our God is so good and that he saved us all. I have a dream that everyone in this room will have their hearts ignited with a pure love for people and an overwhelming desire to see every kind of person imaginable represented in our body and that we will be able to live and love in the earthly tension of figuring out how to make the main thing, the main thing and not minor or not the minor thing. I have a dream that those who sneak in and sneak out, who watch from the safety of their living rooms will be fully known for exactly who they are and loved and cherished as members of this community. I have a dream that our divisive beliefs, and we all have them, will pale in comparison to the love and the respect that we have for one another, and that it will be an affectation of grace 
all over the globe. I have a dream that no matter whether you agree with me or not, you will love me and walk with me as we figure this out together and as we dream together. I have a dream that we will all rest in peace here in the land of the living. Amen. Stand up. Father God, we're thankful that you're so good, that you know and have always known the condition of our hearts, that you knew what we would struggle with, that you knew we would need you, and that there's nothing that's ever held you back from us. God, I pray that we would be known in this church and every church for that truth. The truth of your goodness, your grace, your mercy, your love, your welcome. Thank you, Lord, for the freedom you've given us to rest in peace. Amen. Amen.